Welcome to episode 5 of Matthewlinity, critical study of Matthew and masculinity. In this series, I'll be navigating the world of Matthewan research, identifying assumptions, connecting old and new interpretations, including questions and perspectives previously overlooked or undervalued. There's a whole world of research that awaits. Are you ready? This episode introduces the mystery of why are particular mothers included in the Messiah's genealogy? Scholars previously thought that the answer is not provided in Matthew chapter 1. So we've ended up with various theories as to why some mothers were included and not others. It turns out that the answer is provided in Matthew chapter 1. But why haven't we noticed that the answer is already given in the text? This episode is an introduction to the question of why the writer referred only to particular mothers and an introduction to why we haven't previously been able to see the answer in the text. Why are there a total of five mothers included in the genealogy of the Messiah in Matthew chapter 1? Why does the writer of Matthew refer to particular mothers in the genealogy? Is it due to some kind of feminist agenda? Why include only particular mothers? Or why include any mothers at all in a first century patrilineal genealogy? So patrilineal intending to trace an ancestry through the fathers only? Now, the book of Luke does not include any mothers in the Messiah's genealogy. The book of Matthew does, for some reason. What was that reason? Was there anything feminist, perhaps, in that decision? Probably not feminist in a modern Western kind of feminism, but still, is there anything we can say for certain about why there are references to particular mothers in the Messiah's genealogy. This is perhaps one of the most conspicuous mysteries in Matthew chapter 1. A part of the mystery is about who is not included. So the first matriarch, Sarah, is not mentioned. And the second matriarch, Rebecca, is also not included. And we need to ask, why not? Especially in the case of Sarah. If Sarah were mentioned, then she would be the first mother mentioned in the genealogy. And that would balance nicely with the final mother mentioned in the genealogy, Mary. Because both Sarah and Mary have miraculous kinds of pregnancies. So this would seem to be good reasons to include Sarah. And so we need to ask, well, why not Sarah? This is an underestimated part of the mystery. And so in this episode, I'll be discussing what what has been preventing us from being able to answer this question. I mean, we've, we've been able to come up with guesses. So there are a variety of theories uh, that, that, that try to explain what's going on. But is there an answer already given in the text? I'd like to suggest that there is an answer in the text. It's staring us in the face. But why haven't we noticed it before? Before I go any further, it'll be a good idea to read out the whole of Matthew chapter 1. I think it'll be a good idea for me to read through, to read out aloud the whole chapter. It'll be really good to hear the whole chapter read in one go. We don't often hear both sections read together. So I'm going to read aloud the whole chapter in English. And as I'm reading it, 
I encourage you to think about anything that stands out to you. Anything at all. It might be something that you've noticed before or you haven't noticed before. And to consider whether or not it might be something that earlier readers and hearers would have noticed. And could it even be something that's deliberately put there by the writer, expecting hearers to notice? I'm very interested in the overlap between what we, between the sort of things that we notice and the sort of things that the earliest readers might have noticed because the writer has put them there to be noticed. Okay, so as I'm reading it out, I I just encourage you to think about anything you notice and whether it's just us that would notice something like that or whether it's something that might be intentionally put there for us to notice. Okay, here we go. Matthew chapter 1. Book of Genesis of Jesus Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. Abraham produced Isaac. Isaac produced Jacob. Jacob produced Judah and his brothers. Judah produced Perez and Zerah from Tamar. Perez produced Ezrom. Ezrom produced Aram. Aram produced Aminadab. Aminadab produced Nason. Nason produced Salmon. Salmon produced Boaz from Rahab. Boaz produced Obed from Ruth. Obed produced Jesse. Jesse produced David the king. David produced Solomon from Hur of Uriah. Solomon produced Reboam. Reboam produced Abiah. Abiah produced Asaph. Asaph produced Josaphat. Josaphat produced Joram. Joram produced Uzziah. Uzziah produced Jotham. Jotham produced Ahaz. Ahaz produced Hezekiah. Hezekiah produced Manasseh. Manasseh produced Amos. Amos produced Josiah. Josiah produced Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah produced Silithiel. Silithiel produced Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel produced Abiud. Abiud produced Eliakim. Eliakim produced Azor. Azor produced Zadok. Zadok produced Akim. Akim produced Eliud. Eliud produced Eleazar. Eleazar produced Mathen. Mathen produced Jacob. Jacob produced Joseph, the husband of Mary, from whom Jesus was produced, the one called Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham until David are fourteen generations, and from David until the deportation to Babylon, fourteen generations, and from the deportation to Babylon until the Messiah. 14 generations. The Messiah's genesis happened like this. His mother Mary, being betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she turned out to have a pregnant belly from the Holy Spirit. Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to shame her, intended to divorce her quietly. Having resolved to do this, Behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take home Mary, your wife, for the child in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This whole thing happened so that it would be fulfilled what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin will have a pregnant belly 
and she will give birth to a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Joseph, rising from sleep, did as it was commanded to him by the angel of the Lord. He took home his wife. He was not knowing her up till the time when she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Okay, so there are a lot of things that we could notice. There are lots of different things that different people over the centuries have noticed. Not everything stands out in the same way to everyone. Some people notice the names. So, for example, the name Amos instead of the name Amon. But one thing that stands out, probably the thing that stands out to everybody, is the Messiah's genealogy that's being given is a little bit strange in that the Messiah is not biologically related to that genealogy in the way that biblical genealogies usually work. They're usually about biological and legal ancestry, but here this one is legal ancestry, but not biological. In this case, the Messiah isn't Joseph's offspring. Usually in the scriptures, a genealogy isn't there to point out a disconnect between fathers and the heirs. So it's usually focusing on the continuity between a father and the heir. So this genealogy seems to be pointing out something discontinuous, which is Probably why we've got a second section which seems to try to explain why we have Jesus as the offspring of Mary and Mary has a husband called Joseph, but what's the relationship between Jesus and Joseph? So that's something that stands out to just about everyone. And so one of the standout features or standout questions of Matthew chapter 1 is why bother with a human ancestry if Jesus is a divine Messiah? And so that's one of the questions that many commentators have been asking, well, why bother with a genealogy at all? Well, in the earliest commentaries that have survived, The answer tends to be, well, we don't want to exclude the Messiah's human nature or the divine nature. We want to hold them both together. And this is why it's giving us both. And so this is why we can see in the second section, uh, we've got this divine origin going on. And so we've got the human heritage and the divine heritage. We're trying to not overemphasize one at the expense of the other. And so this was this was the the usual interpretation about why we need to be told about a human ancestry if if Jesus isn't Joseph's offspring and Jesus is being adopted into the genealogy. Now it's not clear that that's what the writer is intending to do in these two sections. In Matthew chapter one, but that is that is a, a um, an interpretation that tries to make sense of what's going on. And so, I'd like to ask, what stands out to us, and do we think that it makes sense? Because often the things that stand out to us are the things that don't make sense. So, on the one hand, we've got a few things that don't make immediate sense to us. But on the other hand, we we feel like perhaps it was supposed to make sense. It was supposed to make sense. So we've got things that don't make immediate sense. Is that because the writer hadn't thought it through? The writer didn't do a very good job? The writer hadn't, you know, worked out 
how various things would fit together. And wouldn't it be easier to just skip to verse 18? Like, if, if it is a bit too messy, perhaps we could just skip to verse 18. And, in fact, one of the translations that I have of Matthew on my bookshelf, it actually does that. It, it skips from verse 1 to verse 18. It skips the, the whole genealogical section. Well, perhaps we, we can't expect to understand the meaning of chapter 1 if we've just deleted two-thirds of it. But, yeah, on the one hand, we've got things that don't immediately make sense to us. But, on the other hand, it does feel like it was supposed to make sense. It doesn't feel completely haphazard or choppy. You know, he, he, the writer has just got one section and then, oh, got another section and hadn't, haven't, really, haven't really thought about how these two sections might be incompatible. Instead, it feels quite carefully and intricately composed. Well, at least it does to me. So it does feel like it was intended to make sense. So if, on the one hand, it feels like there are some things that don't make sense, but on the other hand, it feels like it was supposed to make sense, how do we go about uncovering the intentional aspects of what it was supposed to mean? Well, the way in, as I see it, is to begin talking about intentionality and to be looking for signs of intentionality and also thinking about the things that we notice and whether they could be the same things that the earlier readers and hearers would be expected to notice, to look for that overlap. And so what I'll do is I'll talk about two things that stand out to me in particular. So two things that have stood out to me in particular. One of the very first things that stood out to me when I first started to read Matthew in Greek is that the genealogy is not simply listing names. It's not actually giving a list of names. Even though in English, unfortunately, it often ends up sounding like it's a list of names. It ends up sounding, especially in English, it ends up sounding like, who's the father of? Who was the father of Isaac? Abraham was the father of Isaac. But no, that's not quite what's going on. If the intention were to provide a list of names, then, well, if we wanted a list of names, we could go over to the book of Luke, because the genealogy that's given there is a list of names. But No, that's not what we've got in Matthew. We've got this verb that's used for every single progeneration. We've got progenitors who progenerate. So it's the progenerating which is the standout feature. Every every single progenitor has this, this verb attached to the subject each single time. So Avraham, Egenesin, Yitzhak. Abraham progenerated Isaac. And this certainly is... The standout feature, or one of the most standout features in the first section. This verb is the standout feature in the first section of Matthew. Notice what's going on with the use of verbs throughout the whole of the first section. Or I should say, notice what's going on with the use of the verb. There's only one verb that is used. There is no verb in verse 1, there is no verb in verse 17, and in between, verses 2 to 16, the only verb that is used is this verb progenerated in the active form, and then the final verb is it's the same verb, but it's in the passive form. What we often don't notice in English is that the same verb is maintained until the end. So even in verse 16, when it says Jesus was produced, 
This is the same verb. This is just the passive form of the verb. So when it says Jesus was begotten, so in older English we might say begotten, Jesus was begotten from, Jesus was produced from. It's the same verb as agenison, progenerated. And this brings me to the second aspect which really stands out. And that, that's that this verb is about bringing forth, about giving birth to, which makes more sense when it's applied to Jesus' birth from Mary. Uh, because when it says Jesus was born from Mary, uh, it's using the passive, and, and the passive of giving birth to is being born. But it does seem a little bit strange when it's being used of the fathers bringing forth sons. The fathers are giving birth to sons. So why use this verb? Well, is that just how patrilineal genealogies were written in the first century? The problem is there are some mothers included. Why doesn't the inclusion of particular mothers affect the verb that is used? So we might expect that mentioning Ruth, for example, would affect the verb. That we might expect that it would say Boaz and Ruth. They produced Obed. But it, it, does, it still persists in saying that Boaz produced Obed from Ruth, using the singular verb for he produced. Now, if for some reason it's important to note some mother's along the way, then why not give the mothers an active participation with the verb? Why not say, Judah and Tamar produced, Salmon and Rahab produced, Boaz and Ruth produced, David and Uriah's wife produced, and Joseph was the husband of Mary who produced Jesus. But that's not what it says. What we've got instead has the effect of bringing our attention to what the fathers are doing even more. Now, why are the mothers not being fully included as co-producers? Why not, why not share this verb and use the plural verb? Why, why only have the verb for what the fathers are each doing? Well, is it because that this is not the usual verb associated with mothers giving birth? And, well, a, that's a little bit of, of what's going on because there are so many other phrases that can be used, so many verbs and phrases that can be used for mothers giving birth that, that this, this word is, is usually more associated with what fathers do. So we could say, well, it's, it's just a verb that fathers do, but it's, it's, not, it's not a strict rule. So if we go over to the book of Luke, we find that Elizabeth gave birth to a son, and that's, that is the, the verb agenison, Elizabeth agenison huion. So it is sometimes used by writers to describe a mother giving birth. So the writer could have used it. So we, again, we ask, why not share this verb? Why not include the mothers as co-producers? So what we seem to have here is the assumption that it's the fathers who produced the sons in a genealogy where there are mothers being included. So if we can really appreciate the question that we've got here, we've got the fathers who produced the sons, which in itself is problematic because it's making it sound like it's the fathers producing babies by themselves. Uh, but in some cases, in particular cases, we have fathers who produced sons from mothers. Uh, well, hang on, isn't everyone in the genealogy from a mother? Every, every heir is produced from a mother. So what's going on here? It sounds very patriarchal. Most of the mothers are not mentioned, 
And then the five that are included are not being included as the grammatical subjects of the verb. It seems like such a missed opportunity. Yeah, so why not say that the mothers are producing, or at least co-producing? Now, is, is it because that these five cases are supposed to be linked together? All five cases where there's a mother referred to, then, then we've got a group of five, perhaps? Well, we can understand why Mary is mentioned at the end. Mary's the mother of, of the final heir, the mother of the Messiah. So Jesus is born from Mary. Mary's husband is Joseph. But if they're all supposed to be linked together, then why is each case so different? So each case stands out as um, different in at least one one way that they all stand out as being different. So the fifth case, one of the ways that the fifth case is different to the previous four cases is that the heir is mentioned after the mother is mentioned. In the fourth case, well, that's different because the mother isn't even named. Uh, Bathsheba isn't named. It just says that David produced Solomon from her of Uriah. The third case is different from the other cases, simply because it's not very outstanding. In It's quite straightforward compared to the, the other four cases. Uh, the second case stands out because it seems to be saying that Boaz's mother was Rahab, which is which is un, unheard of. We haven't heard this idea previously in, in the scriptures. So is that saying that Boaz's mother married Salmon? So that's different. And the first case is different because, well, one of the things that stands out is that there are two sons who are named. There's no other no other case in the rest of the genealogy where more than one son is named. Um, there are other possible examples that could have been named. For example, Isaac produced Jacob and Esau. So they're, they're two brothers that could have been named, but, but it doesn't say Isaac produced Jacob and Esau. So they could be meant to be linked as a group, but it's not immediately clear because they, they're all so different in each case. So it's certainly got our attention that there seems to be some connection by saying from a mother, from a mother, from a mother, saying five times, five particular cases where it's noting who the mother of the heir was in five particular cases. Now, the, it's probably supposed to be linked together, all five, because otherwise, why why have the first four cases? If, if it's just supposed to be separating the fifth, if it's just supposed to be separating the final example, the final heir being produced from Mary and a question mark over the relationship between Jesus and Joseph, uh, we didn't need four previous cases necessarily to separate the to make the final case seem different. So it does seem like there's supposed to be some way of, of connecting these five cases. But because each case is unique, it makes it more difficult to know well what what is the pattern? Is there a pattern that that we're supposed to spot in these five cases? The question of why these particular mothers. This question has puzzled interpreters, especially because it's difficult to know whether the fifth case is meant to be connected to the previous four cases. Now, if we're not supposed to be trying to connect the fifth case with the earlier four cases where mothers are mentioned, then the writer shouldn't have included four previous cases. So at this stage, it's not clear what's going on. So whatever is going on, it's definitely caught our attention. And it certainly seems very patriarchal. Now, what we've got in the genealogy 
makes it sound even more patriarchal. If it wasn't enough to say, it's the fathers who produced the sons, and then we have this missed opportunity where mothers could have been included as co-producers, this has an effect, and what we what we want to know is, is this an intended effect? Is this intending to draw our attention even more to how patriarchal this is? Or is this only something that we would notice? Perhaps we are the ones who are making it about gender. Okay, so it ends up seeming even more patriarchal to us because of the way mothers are only partially included and not fully included as co-producers, but could the earliest readers be expected to notice this kind of effect? Is it just us who would notice that sort of thing? Now, surely, surely a first century audience would have noticed how the genealogy is built on the recurring idea of he produced, and that the genealogy finishes with an absence of he produced, having the final heir being produced from Mary the mother, but not by Joseph the father. And if we were expecting that the next section would be about Mary, then we'd be disappointed, because the second section also focuses attention on Joseph the stepfather and what Joseph did or didn't do. Both sections seem to be pointing out a patriarchal theme, even when mothers are there. It's as if both sections are intended to draw attention to fathers. But how intentional is it? Would we be overestimating or underestimating the text if we assume one way or the other? Is there a way to find out if it is just us, making it about gender, or whether it actually was so consciously patriarchal that it really was intended to call attention to patriarchy, or the patriarchal nature of the text. I'd like to demonstrate over the next five episodes how Matthew chapter 1 was intended to expose the patriarchal nature of the genealogy as a critique of certain patriarchal assumptions. In other words, the text wasn't intended to promote patriarchy, but was instead intending to do the opposite, to expose patriarchy, to to critique certain patriarchal assumptions. Except the text isn't doing it in the way that we might go about it. In, in a modern, Western, feminist kind of approach, the way that feminist interpretations work, or at least the ones that I'm familiar with, they're about shifting the attention away from the men and onto the women. The goal is to destabilize the patriarchal nature of the text by shifting the focus away from the elite men and to the women instead. In this case, away from the Messiah's fathers and onto the Messiah's mothers. To us, this seems like a reasonable thing to do. It seems like a, a good idea. Especially if we assume that the text has missed an opportunity to be more inclusive of the mothers by not crediting the mothers as agents of production. To us, it seems unnecessarily patriarchal. We would prefer that the writer did more than simply tell us that the patriarchs produced. Okay, we get it. The patriarchs each had a son as an heir, and so the right of inheritance passed from father to son. Sure, it's a status thing. It's predominantly about elite men and inheritance, but we would prefer to be told 
some more about the mothers of the Messiah. So we, we redirect our attention toward the mothers. And why not? Why not take the opportunity to focus on the mothers? Otherwise, we're stuck with just a patriarchal genealogy. So feminist interpreters have seen the presence of a few mothers here as a chance to shift the attention away from the fathers in Matthew chapter 1. Using this approach, pioneered by scholars like Elaine Wainwright and Janice Capel Anderson, we suspect that the reason that mothers are included at all is almost like some kind of serendipitous glitch. The mothers represent an interruption into the patriarchal pattern. The presence of mothers is a sign that the patriarchal assumptions in the text have not completely suppressed the mothers. The patriarchal assumptions are not thoroughly established. The text is not completely sealed over with patriarchy. The patriarchy in the text shows signs of small fractures or fracture lines. So feminist interpreters see this as an opportunity to magnify the cracks in the patriarchal facade and to peer into the rifts in the text. And fair enough. However, here is the problem. Many feminist interpretations end up finding something feminist behind the text or in front of the text. But what about in the text? Well, no, not really. Because the assumption is that the text isn't feminist. It's only us that's feminist. It's only us moderns who read it that way. We are the ones who make it something feminist. It's not the writer of the text who is writing something feminist. The text wasn't intended to say something feminist. Or so we assume. We've been assuming that the only way to resist patriarchy in the text is to focus on the mothers. The more we focus on the mothers, the more we can resist the kind of patriarchy in the text. But except, if, if we're resisting the text, it also means we're resisting the writer's intention. How are we supposed to discover why particular mothers were referred to if we're resisting the writer's intention? What we need is a method that includes becoming conscious of all our assumptions, including assumptions about what is not in the text. It's one of the things that pre that's preventing us from answering our question. We've been making assumptions about what the text is not saying, what the text is not capable of saying. We've been assuming that the text was not intended as a critique of patriarchal assumptions. But it's this assumption of what is not in the text that prevents us from seeing what is in the text. And it makes sense that if we're assuming that the text is so patriarchal, that it's not saying anything feminist, then of course we will want to distance ourselves from the original intention of the, uh, of, of the text or of the writer. And naturally, some of us are quite wary of patriarchal portions of scripture like Matthew chapter 1. We don't want to perpetuate the kind of patriarchal assumptions we see within the text. Unfortunately, we also tend to assume that the text is permeated with the kind of patriarchy that we ourselves are most familiar with from our own society. In Western societies, we also tend to assume that something is only feminist if it's a Western kind of feminism. And we often fail to recognize something as potentially feminist if it doesn't fit our preconceived notions of Western feminism. Over the next five episodes, I'd like to demonstrate that it is possible to be critical of patriarchal assumptions, the patriarchal assumptions that we see in the text, while also, whilst also listening generously 
to what's being said in the text. We might just discover that the opening chapter of the New Testament is already exposing patriarchal assumptions in a way that is rather critical. But we are unlikely to see it if we presume it's not there. The second kind of thing that has been preventing us from seeing the answer in the text is what we assume is in the text, even though it isn't necessarily there at all, or at least it might not be there to the degree that we're assuming it's there. I'm thinking here about the second section of Matthew chapter 1, the story about Mary and Joseph almost not getting together. The story has plenty of gaps in it. So there are multiple interpretive options that open up for us at every step of the way. In fact, there are so many gaps in the story that we've gotten really good at filling in these gaps without even noticing it. We tend to forget that these things might not be in the text. But let's not be ashamed of reading into the gaps. Our natural human tendency is to try to make sense of things, even if the story has insufficient details. We want to read into the gaps or between the lines. And biblical writers knew this. They they expected us to, to try to fill in the gaps. In fact, biblical writers intentionally wrote story vignettes like this one using a minimal amount of description and explanation. And this way, the the points that are most important uh, get emphasised, but also it's so that readers and hearers would have to work a little bit at joining the dots and filling in the gaps. So it means sometimes something isn't there because the writer is expecting us to to put it there, to, to fill in the gap. But, but it means the challenge for us is, if we're looking for answers in the text, the challenge is to become more aware of how much of what we are reading into the story is actually the sort of thing that we're expected to read into it, and how much of what we're importing is at odds with the text. So how do we distinguish which is which? There are so many things that we regularly read into the text and we no longer seem to notice that we're reading them in. We've become so familiar with our interpretations that we've forgotten that they're not necessarily part of the text. So if we want to be able to evaluate whether or not something is meant to be there, we first need to become more conscious of what these things are. So just a quick example... In the story vignette of Mary and Joseph almost not getting together, there is no dialogue between any of the characters in the story. And yet, we tend to assume that there must be some kind of dialogue happening behind the scenes. And this ends up becoming part of the scene that we're reading. We end up reading it into the text, even though it would have been quite easy for the writer to indicate that someone said something to Mary or about Mary or someone said something to Joseph or about Joseph or been easy to mention that Mary said something to Joseph but that's not the way it was written it was written without indicating any dialogue we naturally want to read into it some dialogue some conversing as though the writer wanted it there, but before we can decide whether or not we are being expected to read in any conversations into the text, we need firstly to admit that that that's something that we are reading in, that we're not necessarily being expected to read into the text. We're not, that's not necessarily there. When we get better at becoming aware of the things we are reading into the text, then we can evaluate whether or not these things are in line with the text or at odds with the text. And so this is what we'll do next episode. Episode 6, 
will be entirely devoted to going through the things we usually read into the story of Mary and Joseph's almost divorce and checking each of these things. Otherwise, we might actually be reading against the text even when we think we're reading with the text. This episode, episode 5, has introduced an important question that arises for readers and hearers of Matthew chapter 1. Namely, why does the Messiah's genealogy refer to a total of five mothers? Is there an answer in the text? If there is an answer in the text, why haven't we noticed it before? How do we go about finding it? It's basically a matter of noticing when we're overestimating or underestimating the text. What we need is to become more aware of when we're overestimating what's in the text and when we're underestimating what's in the text. Both of them are easy to do. It's easy to underestimate what's in the text by assuming that the text cannot be saying something and by missing the signs of intentionality in the text. On the other hand, it's easy to overestimate what is in the text by reading too much into the gaps and assuming that all these meanings belong in the text instead of taking responsibility for our own reading assumptions. Now, there there is some good news because what this means is that this gives us somewhere to begin. We can begin with what we already assume is in the text. There are plenty of things that we already think are in the text, so we can start by noticing what these things are. And we can start examining these things to see how much is actually coming from the text and how much is really just us trying to fill the gaps with meanings from elsewhere. In other words, we can try to become more aware of the things we're reading in that might not be there. So that's the place to start. It will help us to clear away the distractions so that we can find the answer in the text and gradually notice all the intentional features along the way. Okay, so we've got somewhere to begin and we know where we want to end up. What about the steps in between? How do we notice all the features intentionally put in the text and not miss the poetic nuances in the way it has been written? As I see it, there are three steps in between. There are three other questions that will need to be answered before we can get to answering our question of why there are five mothers in the genealogy. Before we can answer why some mothers were included, we need to be able to answer... Why is the second section so focused on Joseph? Joseph is the prominent character in the story in the second section. But why isn't Mary more prominent? We might have expected that the purpose of including some mothers was to lead up to a story about Mary, the mother of the Messiah. But no, apparently not. Why is it written that way? Why make it a story about Joseph? So that's a step before. That's our penultimate step. That's our penultimate question. And in order to answer that question, there's another step just before that that we need to take. We need to discover how the second section is meant to be connected to the first section. Do the two sections actually connect? Do they fit together? Are there links between the two sections that we haven't noticed yet? the more we can understand how the two sections are meant to be connected, then the more uh, it will help us to, to understand what each section is about. Also, this leaves another question. How can we say that we understand the second section if we still don't know what verse 22 is referring to when it says, all this has now happened? That seems out of place. That seems the sort of thing to say at the end of the section, after everything has happened. 
So these are the three intermediate questions that we need first to be able to answer. We cannot expect to solve our original question by skipping over these intermediate questions. All of these questions are interrelated. So over the next five episodes, these are the questions that will lead the way. Five big questions and five big episodes on the way. Here's a quick rundown of the of the order of the next five episodes. Next episode, episode six, we'll be looking at all the things that we keep assuming are in the text, except they might not be there. Episode seven, we'll be looking at why verse 22 seems out of place and what it's referring to when it says all this has happened before the end when it's all happened. And then episode eight, we'll be looking at how the two sections connect. There's a few things we haven't noticed about how the two sections are meant to be connected. And then episode nine, we'll be looking at why it's so focused on Joseph and on fathers. So they'll be looking quite a lot at masculinity in that episode. And finally, in episode 10, we will be in a position to be able to see the answer in the text and solve the mystery of why the Messiah's genealogy refers to a total of five mothers. That's all for episode 5. Thanks for listening.